Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. As the newest addition to our series, we'll be discussing Fabre's disease. We're going to be talking about Fabre's disease with a patient who has this condition, Jerry Walter, and with his kidney doctor, Dr. Gerald Halatic. So we welcome today United States Army Colonel Jerry Walter, who has Fabre disease. He's also the founder and president of the National Fabre Disease Foundation. We welcome Dr. Jerry Halatic, who treats Jerry for his kidney disease, for Febreze. Uh, Dr. Halatic is the Doc Thurston Distinguished Professor of Medicine and the Chief of the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at UNC. So welcome, Jerry Walter and Jerry Halatic. Thank you, Dr. Falk. Thanks so much. Let's begin by asking the question of what is Fabre's disease? Well, Fabre's disease is an inherited X-linked genetic lysosomal storage disease. The lysosomes are that part of the cell that basically help recycle materials in the cell, basically your body's uh, cellular digestive system. And what happens in Fabre's disease is the deficiency of a very important enzyme called alpha-galactositis A, which results from a genetic mutation. And this enzyme deficiency leads to a buildup of a fatty material in the cell that mucks up the cell. It's called a substrate. Uh, the formal name is globotriacylceramide, or GL3. In blood vessels, it affects the kidneys, the heart, the nerves, and essentially every cell and organ in the body. So just in brief, then, Fabre's disease is a disease where the cell can't get rid of a normal product that is supposed to be digested, is supposed to be metabolized, and now because of an enzyme deficiency, that material accumulates. Precisely. And an enzyme is something that normally breaks down proteins. We all have them. It's how you digest food. You break down food by a variety of enzymes. This is an enzyme that's in a cell trying to help process a normal uh, constituent of all of us. Correct. And uh, within the cell with Fabry's disease, the culprit is a fatty material. So that fat then accumulates inside the cell, damaging the cell's ability to function. Correct. And when that cell becomes damaged, it would have different effects depending upon where that cell was. So if it's in the kidney, it would damage the kidney. If it were in another part of the body, it could potentially damage another part of the body. Precisely. And we know that the organs that are predominantly involved are the kidney, the heart, the vasculature, and that has ramifications for injury to the brain, for example. So when you say vasculature, you're talking about blood vessels everywhere? Everywhere. All sizes? All sizes, virtually every cell in the body. And this accumulation starts very early. In fact, you can see accumulation of these fat byproducts uh, at the level of the placenta. So from the very outset, uh, this lack of this enzyme results in accumulation over time of uh, deposits of this material. That's right. And the material, again, is called? GL3. 
that's easier to say than trying to say the whole name of that material. Say the whole name of the material again. That is uh, globotriacyl ceramide. GL3 sounds so much easier. And, and thus, if one could uh, have the enzyme and give it back, it would help ameliorate the condition. Right. It doesn't cure, but it certainly does delay progression of the disease. There are different kinds of Febreze disease. Is that right? Yes, there are. And the most uh, classic form of Febreze disease that comes to attention, so-called classic Febre, manifests during childhood with episodes of painful crises. So these are episodes of severe pain due to neuronal injury that last several hours to days. They're triggered by stress, lack of uh, sleep, extremes of temperature, and even physical exertion. And this begins in childhood. Uh, children also experience a variety of GI symptoms, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. They may have heat or cold intolerance. In fact, they're unable, unable to effectively sweat. So that's the condition that's primarily seen in children. That's right. And then by the time we get to adolescence, we start to see organ injury. But there are a whole bunch of other types of what all is encompassed under the word febraze. That's right. There are some non-classic forms. For example, there's a cardiac variant that often presents later in life, and there are certain mutations that cause a renal variant that may not have prominent uh, injury to nerves, for example. They are more difficult to diagnose because they don't have this uh, systemic total body presentation. That's correct. And in fact, with the cardiac variant, it's estimated that perhaps uh, 3% of patients who have unexplained left ventricular hypertrophy later in adulthood may in fact have the cardiac variant of Fabry disease. How then do you diagnose Fabry's, especially in an older individual in whom the uh, classic manifestations in childhood are not apparent? Well, certainly you have to look at the family history to see if there's this pattern of uh, X-linked uh, inheritance of a cardiomyopathy in a family that remains unexplained. What's a cardiomyopathy? That is uh, injury to the heart where the heart no longer functions normally. The pumping of the heart is impaired. The muscle no longer is able to contract like it, it should. Correct. What about other organs? How do you detect it there? The best way to detect it in organs is with biopsy, but we rarely have to do this because uh, we can often make the diagnosis with blood or genetic testing. What kind of tests are there? So there's a, an enzyme that we can measure in the blood. You can actually measure alpha-galactosidase A, and that's what we use to diagnose the disease in men. Uh, the a level less than 3% essentially makes the diagnosis. Now, you have milder forms where the enzyme uh, levels vary between about 3 and 35%, and in males, that uh, merits genetic testing. Now, it turns out in females that the measuring the enzyme level in the blood is not sufficient to make a diagnosis, and in those cases, you ha actually have to do genetic testing. Are we now past the era when one has to do a biopsy, for example, kidney biopsy, to determine whether a patient has Fabry's disease? Well, there are, uh, in rare circumstances, patients who may have a borderline low enzyme level activity where there is kidney disease that's otherwise unexplained, where you may want to consider doing a renal biopsy. How often does a biopsy now need to happen when compared to, for example, 10 or 15 years ago? 
I would say it's quite rare. I can't put a number on it, but uh, I've not had to do this in my clinical experience. Because the enzyme testing and genetic testing is now so, so good. That's right. How then does one treat Fabry's disease of all kinds? So the cornerstone of therapy is enzyme replacement therapy, and this became available in the U.S. in 2003. It was available in Europe in 2001. Now, it's not cheap and it's not convenient. It requires an infusion intravenously every two weeks. Wow. And we're going to talk more about that enzyme replacement therapy in a subsequent podcast. So let's move back to the patient and your interaction with them. When you see somebody with Fabres for the first time, what kind of uh, concerns are the most common? As you can imagine, there are many concerns. Uh, one of the biggest ones is fear of what lies ahead. And there's also a lot of questions that arise. Uh, patients ask, how will I suffer? Can I lead a normal life? How will this impact my family? Can I have children? What's the risk of passing the disease on to children? What about the pain of Fabry's disease? Can it be controlled? Why is there pain? Is that because of the neuropathy? That's correct. And remember, during childhood, that's often one of the first manifestations of disease, these painful crises. And how do you answer all those questions? Well, I think what we want to do first is uh, give patients hope that there is effective treatment for Fabre, that the outcomes have improved considerably, and that we're on the cusp of new discoveries that will help transform treatment and improve their lives in the future. Jerry Walter, you are a patient with Fabre's disease and somebody who had an illustrious career in the armed forces and now are the president of the National Fabre Disease Foundation. Tell us a little bit more about you. Uh, thanks, Dr. Falk. So I learned that I had uh, Fabre disease when I was about 25 years old, not through testing, but uh, my mother was in the hospital for an unrelated issue and the physician noticed that her eyes were bulging. And bulging eyes is not a symptom of Fabry disease, but it caused the physician to um, look closer, and he found the uh, characteristic corneal whirling that's in the most um, majority of people with Fabry disease. And she was diagnosed, which led to about 18 other people in my family uh, being diagnosed with Fabry disease. By chance, in other words, yes. because eye bulging is definitely not That's part right. of this disease, <laughs> but right. it made the physician look more closely so, uh, at your mother's eyes. Yes, very fortunate for our family and, uh, and for um, the health and well-being of everyone. Tell us a little bit about you after that uh, discovery in your mom. Well, I guess um, so. I'd like to go back a little further. And so growing up, um, I didn't know I had Fabry disease, as is the case in, in most families. And so things were hard sometimes. Physical activity was hard. Uh, being in the heat was hard. I felt I had uh, low self-esteem because of the things I couldn't do. And, I, you know, I always felt a little bit inadequate because of uh, limitations. It all made sense later on in life when I was diagnosed. Let's go through some of those symptoms in a little bit more detail. What does heat do to somebody who has Fabry's? Well, we don't sweat um, properly. So anhydrosis or hyperhidrosis, either reduced sweating or absent sweating, causes pain. 
makes you feel bad. And so, you know, life is hard in that way that uh, if you get out in the sun or you exercise too much, you don't sweat. It, it makes you feel bad and it gives you pain. It triggers the peripheral neuropathy, I think, that uh, happens with fibroid disease. When did you enter the armed forces? Uh, initially when I was 18 years old. Help me then understand, you had a diagnosis of Fabre's made at the age of 25, right. and you must have gone through basic training when you were 18. Right. How on earth did that work? Well, I think we found that it's common for kids to have a lot of the initial um, symptoms of Fabre disease, pain, lack of uh, sweating, GI issues, and then for many children, they get better as they get into, um, as we come older teens and on through early 20s and and then you seem to get a reprieve and I think that'll and and along with the fact that I started in the Air Force which wasn't as bad as the Army and so you only had to do a one mile run once a year in the Air Force as your physical fitness test that helped quite a bit that's not true in the Army though that's not true in the Army right? you were in both both the Air <laughs> right. Force and the Army right so you managed to get through the basic training at the age of 18 Right. I think I had a reprieve in symptoms, which helped. Not entirely, because I still struggled quite a bit. Um, I was an underachiever in the Air Force, physically, more so in the Army. So I got out of the military when, um, after eight years in the Air Force, went to school, got back in the military. And then I went through some really, really difficult times physically. But I just seem to always get through it. Um, Explain or describe some of those difficult times. Well, they made us sweat a lot more, or they made us do things that would cause people to sweat a lot more. But, of course, I didn't, and so I overheated easily. Did you pass out? Uh, I never passed out. The worst uh, situation I can remember was we were on a 15-mile road march in the Army. Luckily, it was at night, and it was raining a little bit, which made it better for me. But it was still the kind of um, hot and tired that I was was different than most of the people around me. So by the end of the road march, everyone had something of mine. Someone was carrying my weapon and my rucksack and my my canteens and everything. I had my shirt off, and I was dumping canteens of water over my head. I was beat red in the face, but I made it. And so, and at the end of the march, of course, I'd lost control of my bodily functions. I was really in tough shape, but I survived the march. And um, that was sort of, that's sort of the story of my entire military career. I survived it. But that's quite the story of that march because you had no idea why you couldn't do it. Right. So I, yeah, I just, as a kid, it was always the same. I would have to stop doing things that other kids were doing. We'd play baseball, and I'd have to quit early. And we'd do one thing or another, and I'd quit early. And I always kind of walked away hanging my head, not, you know, thinking it was just me. I just wasn't tough enough. And, of course, I had six brothers, which uh, made that even worse. And some of them were overachievers physically, and I was the underachiever. As you have moved on in age, what are the symptoms that, have bothered you now the most? Well, so I, so we can separate the symptoms into two things, quality of life and life-threatening. And the quality of life symptoms, of course, are pain, chronic GI problems, which have ruined my life from time to time. What, diarrhea primarily? Yeah, for me, prominently uh, irritable bowel syndrome-like um, diarrhea symptoms. 
And so it just you just did the best I could. And, you know, was, we could get medica some medications that would help a little bit, but it wasn't until enzyme replacement therapy that that really got better. And today it still flares up. So, you know, the, the pain, the um, overheating fr from not sweating, the GI symptoms were always bad. And then, of course, later on in life, it turns into heart disease, kidney disease, lung disease, which I have all of. Um, I have a pacemaker, defibrillator, um, you know, causes the thickening of the heart wall, the ventricle wall, the heart, um, chronic kidney disease. But for me, um, unlike a lot of people with Fabry, my kidneys have held up pretty well. So I've, you know, chronic kidney disease stage one, Great. and I seem to be stable um, thanks to Dr. Aladdick for, uh, for keeping me that way. But um, my heart has caused me some problems. Um, that's the worst thing that's going on with me now. Through all of this, how have you managed your career? Because you've managed it incredibly well. Well, I think fortunately for me that um, being an underachiever physically and kind of being on the bottom of the pile, I did a lot of things to make myself an overachiever in other ways. So I learned skills. I became a strategic planner, um, an operations officer. I was a... Um, I did courses on analytical decision-making, on um, lots of other things that made me a financial manager. So I took these extra courses and learned extra skills and became more valuable uh, to the organizations I worked for that they could easily overlook me being an underachiever in the physical department. But I always passed the tests, although I would say that um, for a person like Faber disease, for instance, you get a lot of uh, chronic swelling, edema in the lower legs. Well, any time that I thought that I was in trouble on a given day that we were doing a physical activity, a, a, a test, I could go to the clinic and say, look at my legs and get a reprieve for a short time. You always had to go back and make it up. But on days I just knew I wasn't going to do well, I would... Um, got a break. Got a break, went back and took my test a week later mm -hmm. and would pass it. So... I found ways to compensate and to get through, and then later on I was behind a desk uh, the last two-thirds of my career. Anybody with a chronic condition learns how to adapt, and everybody with uh, who learns to adapt figures it out That's right. best for themselves. Right. Yeah. Congratulations. It wasn't always easy, no, I'm but sure. it, uh, it worked. And I felt guilty sometimes, you know, taking that route and saying, well, I can't do this. If I do this today, I'm going to fail. So I'm going to, you know, put it, do it another day when I know I can or have a better chance of passing. How would you help patients who are having that same feeling of guilt get over the guilt real quickly? Well, I think, you know, I tell people, I talk to patients all the time, and I tell people that you're going to find things that you can't do, but don't let, don't do it prematurely. Try everything See what you can do. If you can't do something, do something else. If you can't run, ride a bike. If you can't ride a bike, walk. You know, find other ways to to stay healthy and to physically and mentally. So I think to just find alternatives and and don't feel bad about what you can do. It's you know, it's not your fault that you have fabric. Right. It's not your fault that these things happen. One feels guilty about not being able to do things at times, but in reality, with Febreze and other genetic diseases there really should be no guilt because it's nothing that the individual can do anything about. Yeah, I think it's actually the uh, 
the feeling people should have is just the opposite. They should be proud that they've overcome a lot of these things and they push through them and they make it work and they have successful lives and successful careers and manage what they have to deal with. Regardless of the obstacles. Right. When did you meet Dr. Holatic? In uh, the same time I met you. <laughs> In 2008, um, I came into to UNC for an unrelated problem. I had a Bacteremia. It was a second life-threatening bacterial infection I'd had in a year, and so you uh, you introduced me to uh, Dr. Hladek, and we've been uh, great partners ever since. Right. You're wearing a hearing aid. Tell us about hearing loss in Febres. Well, it can happen. Hearing loss can happen either suddenly or progressively. In my case, it's been a, a progression. And hearing loss is usually complicated by other factors other than just Faber disease. So in my case, uh, Faber disease is responsible for part of my hearing loss. I also worked around jet engines for many years, and I had bacterial meningitis, which took quite a bit. But in most people with Faber disease, um, hearing loss is a concern. Mine was um, progressive. It didn't. It's one of the symptoms that doesn't tend to start early. So, you know, later in life, you start losing your hearing, as many people do, but it can be, uh, the loss can be much greater and, and, and often more sudden with fibroid disease. Loud noises of any kind are not good for anybody with any kind of hearing loss. It's all that high-pitched yeah, music um, that we grew up with. That's right. And I think that um, it's hard to deal with, but with all the technology today, I have hearing aids. I have this uh, device that I carry around with me sometimes. It's a microphone that pipes right into my hearing aid. You can get um, other devices that help you. I have a special phone. So I, my hearing loss is pretty profound. Without hearing aids, I can't hear anything. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, it, but I have the tools to keep me, you know, viable and, uh, and communicating with the world. That's wonderful. Tell us about the National Fabre Disease Foundation and how it helps people with Fabre's. Right. So in 2005, at the time, I thought I was going to retire from the military in 2007. And in the, in the, in not related to Fabre, the story was I, um, I was on my way to Washington, D.C. to retire the next day. Instead of retiring, I went into a coma Got to D.C., I was disoriented, I made it to the clinic and uh, gave them my wife's phone number and they said, well, let's get your vital. I said, no, you better write this down. And a couple of minutes later, I went into a coma and I had bacterial, severe um, bacterial meningitis where they told Angela that I probably wouldn't live through the night. And so that um, postponed my retirement. And so you can't retire from a coma. And so that put me in a situation where I went into a uh, um, medical retirement process, and the military kept me for four more years. So I didn't actually retire from the military until 2011. Meanwhile, I wasn't uh, up to speed for doing most things, and I started the National Fabric Disease. So I started the National Fabric Disease in 2005, intending to retire in 2007, and I didn't. So my job while I was on medical retirement in the medical retirement process was just forming the organization. A good confluence of uh, That's right. uh, opportunities. What's it like being married with Fabre's disease? 
Well, in my case, um, my wife is also um, very educated about Faber disease, and she's a genetic counselor, and I have the perfect partner to help me get through everything that I um, deal with on a daily basis. And between us, we're pretty tough. Patients with any kind of chronic disease, any kind of chronic condition, uh, having a partner to help with all the vicissitudes that confront one is just so important. Right. And she just understands when, uh, you know, I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty, <laughs> pretty tough guy, but she understands when, uh, when I can't do something or, you know, when uh, we have to stop doing things because of Fab, right? Right. One last and final question for each of you. If you could share one message for people with Fabry's disease, what would it be? Dr. Halatic, let's start with you. I think the key is that there's hope on the horizon, and I think Jerry will tell you about how things have improved in his lifetime, so never lose hope. And uh, I think that um, we've come so far, and the prognosis for people with fibroid disease is much brighter than it used to be. So we have a definitive laboratory test. We have two treatments that are available and more to come. We have uh, many symptoms that have... Uh, can be recognized to diagnose Fabry, so diagnosis is improving. And I think our uh, outlook for people with Fabry disease is just much brighter than it ever was. Thank you, uh, Jerry Walter, and thank you, uh, Jerry Halatic, for joining us today. No, thank you, pleasure. much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll be recording another episode with Jerry and Dr. Halatic focused on new treatments for Fabre's, one of which is called Galifold. Please stay tuned. You can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much.